Mark for sharing uh, his story with us and Patty sharing uh, your story with us last week. We're so delighted to have you as part of the family here at Jericho Ridge. I love your heart for hospitality. And uh, friends, I want to welcome you. My name's Brad. If you're joining us in person or uh, online, it's a privilege to uh, see and to meet you. And I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge. And it's a pleasure to have you with us as we move together into the fall season. And uh, this September and October, our teaching series will be focused on the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at how we're invited to be participants in God's making of all things new. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever given any thought to how in the world preacher type people select what they're going to talk about over the course of a given calendar year. Uh, but I'll let you in on a little secret as to how this particular series came to be. And that is that uh, last winter, I went away uh, for a day away of prayer and actually went through all of the sermon series that we'd ever preached at Jericho Ridge over the course of the last 16 years and decided to figure out where we had been and where we had not been as frequently. And part of the reason for this is just our express commitment as leaders and elders here at Jericho to make sure that we are expounding the full counsel of God uh, to people in respect to the teaching ministry. And so I wanted to know where we were, uh, were we doing that? And while we've been in and out of the book of Ephesians over the course of the last 16 years, by my memory, we haven't been through it which was a little bit shocking because the book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And so you'd think I'd be preaching from it all the time. And I'd be on hobby horses from the book of Ephesians all the time. But uh, this is one of the things I find so fascinating about this book is in six short, fast-paced chapters, it just covers so much ground with respect to the Christian life. It's just theme after theme after theme. It goes through an overview of some of the most dynamic and important parts of Christian living. It's like, for those of you who are in academia, it's like a syllabus for the Christian life in some ways. Or if you're resistant to that, it's like a roadmap for Christian living uh, because it just covers things like salvation, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, um, life together in the church, Christian behavior, marriage and family, spiritual warfare. It just goes on and on and on. It's just rich with all kinds of important themes for us to explore. And so as we dive in today, I'd invite you to open up your uh, Bibles or on your device uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. And you can look on the Jericho Ridge app. There's uh, actually a Bible reader built right into there. And so you can find Ephesians chapter 1 in there for our uh, theme together this morning that I've entitled, not very creatively, The Incredible Greatness of God's Power. And we're going to see as we move through all of chapter 1 this morning, three of the core themes of Ephesians that come up a few times in the book. And we're going to talk about how they impact our core thinking and decision making as followers of Jesus uh, here today. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 begins in this way. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. 
And so right away, we are introduced to the context uh, of this particular book. It's a letter uh, written by Paul, who was one of the early leaders in the early Christian movement, and he's writing it to a group of Christians who are gathered in the ancient city of Ephesus. And one of the things to keep in mind as we move through Ephesians is that Paul is writing this from a jail cell. So he is experiencing incredible hardship and challenges in his own life, and yet the tone of Ephesians actually is quite characteristically different than you might imagine maybe if you or I were in a jail cell. And so the tone that he takes right away in this next prayer, opening prayer starting in verse 3, is a, a little bit shocking because it's, it's jubilant. It's, it's celebratory in nature. And this prayer has three of these themes in it. And it can read a little bit, if you read through Ephesians 1, just like one long run-on sentence where you think, does this guy use any type of like flow of thought or punctuation at all? He's just so excited to get all of these thoughts down on paper and the relationship that both Paul has with the Ephesian church and then that we're called into as parts of God's family together. And so the theme that he wants to open with is the theme of belonging. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, verse 4, God loved us and chose us to be in Christ, holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. And so we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on all who belong to uh, his dear son. So Paul's sitting in his jail cell, and he's not writing about the bad food or how persecuted he is, even how much he longs to see his friends again. He's captured by the incredible riches and glorious goodness of God to the Ephesians and to all who are part of God's family. He writes about the spiritual blessings that you and I have received as a result of God's work of salvation through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Present circumstances for Paul are not his focus. Praise is his focus. And the blessing of salvation, the blessing of salvation uh, to those who believe is expressed in many, many different ways, quite creatively, often through metaphors to try and help us explore the richness of it in the New Testament. And here the language of family or of adoption is where he turns next. That God chose you and I to belong, to be a part of God's family. And embedded right in this discussion and in this text is a great tension which Christians have lived with and explored and theologians have spilled countless expressions of pages of ink 
over and wrestled with through the centuries, and that is the question, did God choose me or did I choose God? Theologians call this the doctrine of election, and it draws its roots from this sense of, of a linear progression, a sense of, of time, where Paul talks about salvation here. He says, before time began, God loved you and chose you in Christ. Well, what does that actually mean? To some Christians, that means that God chooses some people and not others then. And then people begin to wrestle with the question, well, doesn't that invalidate or override a sense of personal choice on, on my part? What does it mean that God chose me? What about my freedom of choice to choose God or Jesus? Well, spoiler alert, I'm not able to solve uh, in one message for you today what good Christians have argued about for more than two millennia. But I will say that we, we need to be careful as to how far we strike out in any particular direction from this text, either with the notion of God's choosing and eternal predestination or the notion of personal efficacy and dynamic in choosing Christ when we are discussing salvation. If we move too far in either direction, we're likely to fall into some ditch because the context of this statement is, is a prayer that Paul is expressing, a prayer of thanksgiving for all of the blessings that you and I have and share because we are in Christ, because we belong to God's family. And he uses this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, as if we should all understand what this means in some way. And what does it actually mean to be in Christ? We sing about it often. It's, it's great lyrics for lots of worship songs. But even in there and in the biblical text itself, there's a flexibility of range of meanings. And so often it becomes a little bit fuzzy for us to think about, well, what does it mean that we are in Christ in some way. And the New Testament authors use it in a few different ways, but for Paul, this phrase, in Christ, is an identity statement. It's a statement of belonging, of location in some way. It is because of what God has done in Jesus and through Jesus that we are blessed by God's grace and God's grace has been poured out in him, Paul says in verse 6, and God has given us redemption in him. God set out his eternal plan, he's going to say in verse 10, in Christ. And we have obtained our inheritance in and through him, in verse 11, because we have placed our hope on him, verse 12, and we have been sealed with the spirit of Christ, verses 13 and 14. And so Paul's trying to help us understand that what it means to be in Christ is to be a part of a family. Because when you are a part of a family, you are literally in that family. You've been incorporated into that family. And that's why the language of adoption is so powerful here. And it, it touches on uh, my own family story. Before I was born, my mother uh, had a child before she knew my dad. And she decided 
that at that period in her life, she was going to give that child up for adoption. And that child, my half-sister, then became part of and incorporated into a wonderful and loving family. And when she became part of that family, she received all of the incredible goodness and love that was part of that family. They chose her, and she became part of that family. And some of you here have walked that road or experienced sometimes the blessings and sometimes the hardships of that experience of adoption. But one of the things that we paid attention to in that particular journey is as more time passes after the point or the moment of adoption, often the emphasis on the chronology of actions fades away. And what comes to the forefront is the dynamics of belonging and love that exist in that family. It becomes less about who chose whom and when, and just about the sense of love and togetherness. And so I think that's one of the things that Paul is trying to help us get at when he's asking the question, what does it actually mean to be a part of a family? In this case, a part of God's family. And when you're part of a family, one of the things that that means is that you belong. And so one of the things that I want to say to you is that if you are part of God's family, it means that you belong. That the question that many of us wrestle with at that very deep level in those quiet moments of our lives or moments of hardship, do I really belong, is really an invitation to explore and step into the grace that God offers for belonging as a part of God's family. Because as fellow family members, I want to remind you here today that despite your history, despite your besetting sins, despite how connected you feel here at Jericho or how new you feel here around here, God loves you and wants you as part of God's family. And that means that we love you and we want you as part of God's family as well. Even if you're weird, because we're a little bit odd and quirky too around here. There's an old bad joke that goes something like, well, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your therapist. And so you may need to put that into practice in some way. I cannot give you a chapter and verse for that, I'm sorry. But this opening sort of set in, in the movement of the book of Ephesians reminds us again about the importance of God's family. So that is the first movement, that God has done everything that's necessary for you to become part of God's family. And then now you have a choice. You have an option to say, God, I want to become part of your family through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you're placing your trust, your confidence, your hope, your sense of identity and belonging in the faith that you have in Jesus and in the strength of God's invitation. So friends, I cannot stress it enough. If you haven't yet made that choice, at some point in your journey, 
to say yes to the invitation of being part of God's family, then today is your day. And if you're watching online, then if you could just email us and let us know, email prayer at jerichoridge.com, and we would love to walk with you in that journey and help you understand more of what that means to belong. And if you're in the room during our response time a little bit later on, uh, our prayer response team, Ali Nicole and James Carpenter and Meg Sumner are on prayer response at the back. And if you'd like to know more, they are safe and wonderful people that you can talk to. And I'm not just saying that because I'm married to one of them. But let's keep moving because there's more to unpack in Ephesians chapter 1. And the first theme is that of belonging. The second theme is if you belong to a family, then you are in line for something amazing, and that is inheritance. Let's look together at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Furthermore, Paul says, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For God chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now, us Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. So some of you have, at some point in your adult life, made a large purchase of some kind, maybe a vehicle or maybe uh, a home or a condo. And when you do this, you make something called a down payment on this. And this down payment is kind of a contractual guarantee that the full sum of money is going to be coming at some point from you in the future, in just, say, 600 easy payments of $999 or whatever the terms of your mortgage happen to be. So the language of a commercial transaction is what Paul is appealing to here. He's saying that when you say yes to God, when you become part of God's family, you receive something wonderful and precious, and that is that God gives you a down payment on your inheritance. Well, what's our inheritance? We believe as people of faith that our inheritance eternally is to joyfully live with God forever and to join God in God's project of making all things new. And that those who are in Christ by faith get a taste, a down payment of this in some way. God gives us not some kind of notarized document somewhere that says, okay, you're in, please present this in some fashion. No, God says, I'm going to go so far above and beyond that. I'm actually going to give you of myself. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. See, when you become part of God's family, whatever moment that happened for you, whatever journey that looked like for you, you received God's down payment of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God came and took up residence in your life. And so while you are very much in Christ, also the Spirit of Christ is very much in you. And the purpose of this 
is not just to remind you of your family connection, but so that, Paul says, you can live a life that brings praise and honor and glory to God. Well, how do you do this? What does that look like? My financial planner tells me that one of the things becoming more and more popular in our world today is what uh, we might call a living will. And this is where, instead of waiting until the moment of death, at which point then all that is the person who has deceased becomes yours through an inheritance, there's a growing trend toward dispersing some of that money now so that it can be enjoyed by the givers and the receivers, whether the givers are parents or grandparents or whomever that is, while they are still alive. And they can draw that sense of joy and delight from seeing the inheritance in action in some way. And that's what I think Paul is driving at here in some way. He's saying, when you get this inheritance now, it actually catalyzes you to participate in that which you are going to participate in one day fully in the here and now. This is what motivates our response to God in worship of saying, thank you, God, for the things that you not just will give me, but are giving me and have given to us in some way. And God is honored when we put our inheritance, gifts that he's given to us by the Spirit, resources that he's entrusted to us as a community, into action in some way. I love the way that New Testament scholar N.T. Wright summarizes the plot line of these few short verses in Ephesians. He says, quote, God has taken the initiative. God has done what was necessary at great cost to himself to buy us back from the slavery of sin. And then God has given us the spirit as a sign and a foretaste of the whole renewed cosmos which awaits us as our inheritance, end quote. And so we, we have to come to terms with the question of what is the purpose of an inheritance? What do you do with an inheritance? Well, we are, as people who follow God, blessed to be a blessing because this is an inheritance of great magnitude. And so our response to this inheritance is quite telling. So. We, we remind ourselves regularly when we gather in worship, when we engage in God's word and in studying it, that God didn't just call you to be part of God's family so that you could have a cozy religious experience and wonderful relationship with Jesus when you die. No, you can have a rich and abundant life with God now, and that life can spill out of you into the people and places around you. In the case of an inheritance, when someone passes away and leaves you money or property in their will, you feel the sense of gratitude toward that person, but you don't just take the inheritance check, mount it on the mantle somewhere. No, you cash it and you put it into play. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. The purpose of an inheritance is actually to use it in some meaningful way way. And you and I, friends, have been given a wonderful and precious inheritance to put into play in God's world. And so with the spiritual blessings that you have been given 
If you have been blessed, you have been blessed to be a blessing in whatever way that looks like for you, generosity of time or money or parenting strategies, whatever that looks like. Hospitality, as Mark talked about in his story. And the chapter invites us to remember in the third theme that we don't actually do this alone because part of the deposit of that inheritance is a sense of God's incredible power and presence. And the chapter concludes with what is going to become a reoccurring theme in the book of Ephesians, and that is the theme of power. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Ever since, Paul says, I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand what it means, the confident hope that God has given to you in those whom he's called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And so again, from his jail cell, Paul is not writing, hey, people in Ephesus, can you come across and get me out of this garbagey situation that I'm in? But rather, his prayer is for others that God would fill them, would fill you and me with wisdom and insight so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of what it means to be in this wonderful relationship with God. Did you catch that? Part of the Christian life is a learning journey, applying ourselves to understanding God and God's wisdom and riches and who God is and how God is revealed to us in the Scripture so that we can learn more about the riches and the hope of our inheritance once we are in Christ. And now Paul just goes for it. It's the crescendo of his prayer and his musical number, starting in verse uh, of chapter 1, verse 19. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And God has put under the authority of Christ and all things and has made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. See, one of the things for us to know and understand about the book of Ephesians is that the people in Ephesus would have been very, very accustomed to discussions of power. See, the city of Ephesus was a seat of power in the ancient world. They had civic power. They had political power. It was a major center of Roman influence where the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, was promoted in everything from civic architecture to artistic venues to clothing design, day-to-day conversations. And Ephesus was also a seat of religious power. There were lots and lots of cults and weird religious beliefs 
uh, that were popular, and we know from historians that they often centered around power dynamics. Ephesian people were obsessed with what it looked like to get supernatural powers to make things happen, to influence events or people, to acquire wealth, to do better in business, to deal away or deal with their adversaries. And this is a worldview that we encounter uh, when we do work in places like Tanzania. And Peter's going to head there uh, this week on Wednesday. And so just keep him in your prayers in the work of Under the Same Sun that we as a church are partners with. See, friends, there are always always people in the world who are hungry for power. And Paul says, oh, you want to talk about power, do you? Well, the greatest power, the greatest act of power that the world has ever seen or known actually has two parts. Part one, it was an act of loving sacrifice where God gave of God's self and Jesus died, laid down his life to save the world. And part two of this act of power was that three days later, God acted in power to raise Jesus from the dead. But this power, Paul reminds us, is not just something that sort of happened at a one-time moment in history and is sort of ancient lore in some way. No, in places like Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, you don't need to be ashamed talking about the power, the good news about Christ, because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. And Ephesians chapter 1 just gives us this insight. It's like it pulls back the curtain into how God's incredible power is today, right now, still at work. This same Jesus, Paul says, is presently alive and active, seated at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty in the heavenly realms with authority and power that surpasses anything that anyone in the world could ever think and imagine. Do you have a ruler or authority or structure that you think is a pretty big deal? Paul says, it's nothing compared to the authority and power that Jesus possesses. Have you come across or up against any demonic forces or influence that seems strong to you? It pales in comparison to the incredible power of the Spirit of God. Do you have an addiction that you feel like you can't break free from? Jesus' power is stronger and liberating and can set you free because Paul says God's power has been unleashed into the world and nothing in heaven and on earth or things under the earth is stronger than God's mighty power. And so let me ask you today, where, friend, do you need to see God's power? Maybe in your life, you're facing what seems to you to be an impossible situation. Maybe it's medical. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a relational breakdown in circumstances or families. And, and you just think there is nothing or no one that could fix or attend to this in any way. Maybe it's a circumstance you've been praying into for years and you've kind of just given up and lost hope. Where do you need to see God's power? At work? In your life? In our world? 
one of the reasons why we have a prayer team available every week is that sometimes we just lose sight and lose focus of this. And those people are there to help journey into reminding us of what it means to focus on listening to and attending to what God might want to do in your life and situation. If you're online, we'd invite you to email prayer at jerichoridge.com and let us join with you in inviting God's presence and power into those spaces. And every weekend, we have this available for you and people at the back. So Allie and James and Meg are going to be there today. They'll have name tags on so you can recognize them. And it would be our privilege for them to stand with you in prayer in that way. And friends, oftentimes, it can be little or big. It doesn't have to be something massive that you say, I just need to see God's power at work in my life and be reminded of that yet again. Because so often, our physical eyes grow dim and we just lose sight of the things that we want and need to be reminded of. The truths that you belong to God. And you are in Christ. If you have said yes to Jesus, you have been adopted and are a part of God's family. And therefore, the presence and the power of the Spirit are at work in your life. And the Spirit has been given to you as a down payment on your future inheritance. And so again, friends, today, it's our choice to place our trust and our confidence, not just in human wisdom and how can I get this sorted? What can I use in terms of personal ingenuity to fix these problems, but to rely and trust yet again in the presence and the power of God. Jared and the team are coming and they're gonna lead us in songs of response. And these songs of response are framed as prayers where we are adding our voices, our words to the global, eternal, and unending chorus of people who are saying, yes, yet again, I need to choose to fix my eyes on Jesus, who fills everything, all things, everywhere with himself. And let's pray together, friends, as we confess our dependence on God and say yes to him. I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we respond to God in worship today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we confess, I confess that my eyesight is poor. I just get so focused on things that are in front of me day to day to day. And I get tired and grow weary and things that you desire for me to pay attention to become opaque or seem distant. God, I pray in this space today, in this moment today, would you touch our hearts again? We desire to experience again a fresh move of your presence and power in our lives, in this church, in your church. And we ask this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.